And before I begin reading this chapter and, and commenting on it, um, I think it's good to prepare for what we'll see here. And so what we'll see here is the end of the road for a specific set of believers that followed God, uh, that lived committed lives, sacrificial lives, serving God, experienced lots of, it, lots of problems, tragedies, times of, of hardship, even famine. But we'll see the end of the road and how God finally dealt with them. It's a common experience. I would say it's an experience that every traveler has that the road is rarely an indication of what the, the destination will be like. Uh, if we think about even American history. We remember our Pilgrim Fathers. They crossed the great Atlantic Ocean in search of a better life with more freedoms. And if they were to just look over the sides of the ship and, and try to judge what life would be like in that new world by their experience in the ocean, crossing the ocean, they would not have come to the right conclusions, would they? They would have concluded, man, this is going to be the worst. It's always going to be like this. We'll always be running out of food, seasick, walled up in this tiny ship. Uh, but no, their conviction that a better thing waited for them on the other side is what drove them forward. Uh, and in our lives as Christians, the difficulties we experience day by day, they tempt us to question God. It's a very common experience that we all go through. We're all tempted to question God. Uh, the Christian life, it should be this glorious life where there's just one degree of glory to another, and we see visions of angels, and God's always whispering to us, encouraging things, and, and we have no issues. Uh, but it's not like that for any of us. We encounter sickness. We encounter tragedies, even death of loved ones, persecution for our faith, disappointments of various kinds. And so we're tempted to question God. Uh, and that's what the doctrine of providence is all about. The doctrine of providence is, is peeling back the curtain on what's actually happening in your life as a believer, as a Christian. There's many things that are constantly happening around you that you are oblivious to. And not only that, but there's things constantly happening around you that you don't really even know what they're leading to, what the purpose of them are. We may have a rough idea of what God's plan for our lives is, but often we, we fail and we struggle because we can't connect all of the difficulties and tragedies in our life with God's eternal purpose. And so God has given us the book of Ruth as an answer to that question. Is, is God really dealing with me as a good father would deal with his son or daughter? Is God really dealing with me in a good way? And this book is trying to tell us this, that the astonishing goodness of providence can only be seen at the end. It can only be seen at the end. The astonishing goodness of providence can only be seen at the very end of our lives, as we look back and survey how God led us and dealt with us. And to teach us that, we are not taught that in an abstract way. We're given a real example of people that really lived in the same world we live in. Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi, you remember, are these three characters that we have been considering in this book, this little short biography 
of these people that lived 3,000 years ago or more in Israel. And so what will we see at the very end of the road? Uh, What will we see when we finally do reach that place, heaven, when we're in the kingdom and we survey our life? Uh, What will we see? Will, Will God's goodness, will we acknowledge that, that God's goodness was really abounding toward us in every moment of our lives? This book, and this final chapter especially, is telling us that we will see that in three different ways. And so first, we'll see that all our sacrifices will be rewarded. Every sacrifice that we have ever made for God or his people will be generously rewarded. But in order to see that, we do have to dive into the, the culture a bit here. Uh, we do have to look at this passage, chapter 4 in Ruth 4, the first few verses that tell us about a legal proceeding in Israel. And so let's read that and, and try to understand what exactly is happening here. It says, Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the kinsman redeemer of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, Turn aside, my fellow, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Then he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the fields of Moab, has to sell the portion of the field which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to uncover this matter in your hearing, saying, Acquire it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if no one redeems it, tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day you acquire the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the one who had died, in order to raise up the name of the one who had died on behalf of his inheritance. So the kinsman redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem it. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the right of redemption in the exchange of land to establish any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, acquire this for yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have acquired all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon from the hand of Naomi. And also, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the one who had died on behalf of his inheritance so that the name of the one who had died will not be cut off from his brothers or from the gate of his birth. You are witnesses today. And all the people who were in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May Yahweh grant the woman who is coming into your home to be like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And so you shall achieve excellence in Ephrathah and shall proclaim your name in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, through the seed which Yahweh will grant you by this young woman. 
Interesting. So how does this passage here yield that truth, that our sacrifices will be rewarded? Well, let's understand what's going on here. And if you have not been joining us for previous past chapters, you are dropping in right into the middle of a, uh, a really deep cultural situation. And so when you study the Bible, um, you do, we do have to do work, don't we? So when we talk about Bible study, we're talking about things like this. We need to actually understand what, what's going on here, who the elders of the gate, and the redemption, and the redeemer, and why is this guy marrying a lady and also getting land, and he seems more concerned about the land and the, the descendants and the romance of the marriage. Well, all this is just our, our need to study the Bible. We are not Israelites living at the time of the judges, are we? Uh, and so we do. We just need to figure out what exactly is going on here. The, most import, the single most important tip I could give any Bible student would be to pay attention to the context. So when you're studying a passage, you need to pay attention. Where, where exactly is this passage found? Okay, where am I? When am I? Who are these people? I don't just drop in and spiritualize it. Oh, God, should I get married? I drop into this passage. Oh, well, I, I landed on uh, this, this uh, marriage that seems to be taking place. That might be a sign from God. Uh, No, that's not how we study the Bible. We just walk through the Bible and try to understand um, what's happening in the lives of the characters. And from that, we draw conclusions about God and Christian living. And so what's happening in the book of Ruth? Well, in the first chapter, you remember, Naomi is the main character. So if you're struggling to keep the names in perspective, the author really wants us to experience the story through the eyes of Naomi. Ruth is the heroine. Okay, she's the hero of the story in some ways, but Naomi is, um, the story's written from her perspective. Naomi left Israel 10 years ago now uh, with her husband and two adult sons during a famine. And so they were living in a foreign land for, for a while, so long, in fact, that her sons married foreign women. One of those women was Ruth, and the other uh, is relatively insignificant in the story. Well, Naomi, she experienced the greatest tragedy uh, an older woman could experience where her, her sons and her husband died around the same time with no explanation from God. We don't know if it was a punishment because they left Israel. We don't know if they just caught a disease or they got in a fight with someone. They just died. No explanation. And so she's a widow. She's not wealthy. It's, it's assumed she's not a wealthy woman. And so she has no choice but to travel back to Israel. And her daughters-in-law, who are also widows, right? You remember these, the women are also widows now too with her. Uh, they, they have to make a decision. Will they return with her? Or will they stay with their families and their nation? Well, Ruth was the one daughter-in-law that chose to leave everything behind and care for Naomi. And she made this this great heroic vow of loyalty to her in that first chapter. Uh, But the first chapter ends with Naomi not really recognizing the blessing she has in Ruth. The the first chapter ends with Naomi um, lamenting, and appropriately in some ways. Uh, It's appropriate to lament when your loved ones die. But what was not quite right with her is that she concluded from her tragedy that 
the arm of God was against her. That, oh, this is proof that I'm now on God's bad side. And that chapter closed with her in a deep depression. But chapter 2 gives some additional hope for her. They arrive in Israel, and Ruth, her her younger daughter-in-law, who's also a widow, she doesn't waste any time. She runs out uh, immediately to the fields and and tries to scrape together some food for the widows. Uh, And in God's providence, Ruth just happens to bump into the one man in Bethlehem that can help them. Uh, A man who is called a kinsman redeemer in that culture, a man named Boaz, you remember. And this man, as a, a relative of Naomi, was responsible for caring for her and her family. Uh, that was part of the law of Moses and part of their culture as well, that when a man died, his family was expected to come alongside the widows and the children and to make sure they were cared for. And so Boaz was that man. She just happened to bump into him. And then in chapter 3, Naomi comes out of her depression a bit, or at least enough, that she is touched by Ruth's plight. She is moved with compassion for Ruth, and she doesn't think it right for Ruth to, to live to old age, caring for her, this old lady, uh, with no hope. And so she says, you need to get married. Let me help you secure a husband for yourself. And she said, isn't Boaz a kinsman redeemer of our family? And so we went through that last week where Ruth actually proposed to Boaz, Uh, at the encouragement of her mother-in-law. And Boaz agreed to that. But there was a complication, you remember. Boaz said, yes, I will be willing to do this. You're an excellent woman. Uh, You're known all throughout the city for what you've done for your mother-in-law. But there's a problem. There's a man before me who who we we must consult first. And so this left us at the end of that last chapter a little uneasy. Well, Boaz seems to be the right guy. But uh, there's this other man that is first in line to, to redeem, that's the word, to redeem Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth, and also the land that Naomi has that we learn about in chapter 4. And so we come to chapter 4, and that's what's happening here. Boaz is having a conversation with the elders of the city, the legal judges of the city. This is the courtroom, okay, the gate of Bethlehem. And he's talking to this other man who is in front of him in line uh, to redeem these, these widows and to marry Ruth as well. And so, again, he just happens to bump into this guy. No sooner does Boaz sit down at the gate, you notice it says, Behold, the kinsman redeemer of whom he spoke was passing by. So, again, God's providence just happens to bring the right man along for this conversation. And we see that Boaz, some people think that he's trying to manipulate the other man. Like at first he only mentions the field, oh, there's this extra land that someone needs to redeem. Someone needs to buy from Naomi uh, because she has to sell it. Um, But I don't think that's fair. Uh, to, To really understand what's happening here, we have to understand two very important things to the Jews. One would be that it was of vital importance for the family's land to stay within the family. So you, you remember when God divided the land among the tribes of Israel, he actually allotted specific plots of land to each family. 
And he said, I want that land to stay in that family forever. And so when, a, when someone became so poor that they were forced to sell the land, God said, okay, you can do that, but uh, there, there will be the, a law, there will be a time of redemption, and if another relative comes around who, who is able to buy that land, the, the, they have to sell it back into the family. Okay, and so that's what we're talking about with a redeemer and the land. Uh, very important to the Jews. Another thing that was very important was the family line. So the worst thing that could happen to you as a Jew, as an ancient Jew, would be for your family line to just disappear into nothing. For, to die childless, to die with no children, no legacy. Um, that would be the absolute worst in that culture. And so that helps us understand the, uh, the interest the author of Ruth has in what's going on here. But notice the, the other man, he says initially, oh, if I need to redeem the land, sure, I'm willing to do that uh, because there's no descendants and, and I guess this means I'll get some extra land permanently and it will be a, a net value add to my estate. But then Boaz says, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, there's more to the story. It's not just the land. Part of caring for Naomi in this situation would also require that you marry her daughter-in-law. Remember, because the, the, the thing that was of great importance to them was that the family line would continue. And the only possible way that the Naomi's family line could continue would be if someone married her daughter-in-law and fathered a son uh, to raise up the name of that son on Naomi's land. Uh, are we, do, we, do we understand what's happening here? Okay. If you're kind of wrestling and struggling to, to really hold all this in your mind, here's just what to, what to know about what's happening in this passage. A man has to make a sacrifice in order to care for these two widows. So notice when the, when the other man, he learns, oh, this, this is not actually going to be a net ad. This might actually diminish my own estate, uh, my own wealth. We learn, oh, okay, so... Caring for Naomi and Ruth in this situation will be a sacrifice for the man that chooses to do that. And this other man is not willing. But Boaz is, is being gracious with the man, I think. He's saying, he tells the man before he even asks for an answer, he says, just so you know, if you don't want to do this, I'm willing to do it. So there's no pressure on you. Right? He says, uh, tell me that I may know there's no one else to redeem it, uh, but I will redeem it if you don't do so. And so the man says, well, since I would have to marry Ruth um, and care for her and Naomi and the land I would acquire, acquire would eventually uh, revert back to her family, I can't do this. I can't. Maybe he's not wealthy enough. Um, we don't know when we can't speculate. But we can know for sure that Boaz is doing something heroic here. So he is risking his estate. He's risking his property and even his name uh, to raise up a son through Ruth. And so what is the response of the people to this? To us, it may seem, wow, this is kind of strange. Uh, we don't quite understand the importance of this. O okay, but what was the response of the people that witnessed this sacrifice of Boaz. We read that 
in verses 11 and 12. Let's look again at the response of the people. They said, We are witnesses. May Yahweh, the Lord, grant the woman who is coming into your house to be like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And so you shall achieve excellence in Ephrathah and shall proclaim your name in Bethlehem. So we see that they are praying for God to reward his act of sacrificial love toward these, these ladies. Uh, the, they are praying for the Lord to reward him. And what, are the, what is the nature of their prayer for him? Uh, it is that he would receive power, wealth, and fame through his children. Uh, that he, because of his heroic act of caring for these women, this little family that was about to disappear into oblivion, uh, they prayed that his name would be the greatest name in the world, in a sense, that his family would be the most exalted and famous family in their nation. Was that prayer answered? What we're preaching about in 3,000 years later, on the other side of the world, aren't we? Is Boaz famous? He is, isn't he? Okay. Uh, His family line. How prestigious was this man's family in the subsequent generations? Was that answer? Did he achieve fame and renown through his children? Again, you read Matthew chapter 1, and we'll get to it in a few moments. But yes, we can, we'll see actually that his family became the most famous family line of all history. And this prayer was answered. What about Ruth? What was her reward? What, was, what did they pray for her? They prayed that God would reward her with motherhood. With motherhood. Uh, to many of us, or to many in our culture, motherhood, motherhood is a form of slavery or servanthood. Uh, we think, well, motherhood is what you do if you have no other options. <laughs> but here, to the Jewish mind, and I would even say in God's mind, for a woman, motherhood is the ideal. Motherhood is the greatest blessing a woman could ever experience. Look at what it says. May the Lord grant the woman, Ruth, who is coming into your house to be like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. So that is their prayer for Ruth, that she would build a great house. Is that how we think of motherhood? Well, it should be how we think of mother. I know people out there don't, but it's how we should think of motherhood. That's actually a great reward that God gives us, a great blessing God gives us. They prayed that she would be the builder of a great house in Israel. And again, uh, we'll see in a few moments that that prayer was answered. And so this is all pointing us, the author is pointing us to the, the future blessings uh, that we will experience as a result of our sacrifices. So providence, God's providence in our lives is not disconnected from our decisions. We make decisions. God doesn't work apart from the the sacrifices of his people. He works through the the service and the sacrifices of his people. And he wants us to know, and the author wants us to know here, that all of those sacrifices will be rewarded 
in ways that, that far exceed our imagination. Uh, not necessarily health and wealth in this life, and we have to be careful when we apply Old Testament narratives, because often God, he did make people healthy and wealthy in the Old Testament, but that was to teach us a greater lesson, that was to teach us that he's a rewarder of his people. Ultimately, that reward is eternal and beyond, and it transcends this life. So we have to be careful that we're not preaching about health and wealth and promising that to every believer. But at the same time, we can learn from the physical blessings God gave these people and conclude that God does reward our sacrifices and our service. And this theme is all over the Bible and a great emphasis in the New Testament. Jesus told his disciples, sell your possessions and give it as charity to the poor. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven. So God rewards every cent people give to the needy. He also rewards every sacrificial act of service. That's what drove the Apostle Paul forward in his ministry. Probably the greatest Christian pastor and the greatest Christian preacher of history was the Apostle Paul. But how was he treated? Was he, was he paid like that? No. Often he, he ministered without receiving a cent from the people he served. He said, what is my reward? That when I proclaim the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my authority or my right in the gospel. And so he did that because he loved people, but he was looking for the reward. He said, there's a reward laid up for me for every sacrifice I make. Uh, God is not anyone's debtor. God will repay every sacrifice I ever make. I'm glad to sacrifice and to preach for free. That's what he said. God also rewards even the most trivial good work. And there are likely thousands of good works you have done that you've already forgotten, but that God still remembers. Jesus said when he returns in glory, he will say to us, come you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat, I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Even the most trivial act of benevolence, the Lord Jesus remembers. And Boaz had done all of these things. He had given food to Naomi and Ruth. He had given her water, remember, chapter 2. And he invited them into his family. He invited the strangers in. All of our good works will be rewarded. And so what will we see at the end of providence, at the end of our lives? We'll, we will see the Christian with his reward in his hands, fully rewarded for his service to God and to God's people. But what else will we see? We, we'll see also in verses 13 through 15, the second sight we'll see at the end will be misery reversed. It says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and Yahweh granted her conception, and she gave birth to a son. Then the, wo- the women said to Naomi, Blessed is Yahweh, who has not left you without a kinsman redeemer today. May his name be proclaimed in Israel. May he also be to you 
a restorer of your soul and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. With that in your mind, let's, let's look back and remember Naomi's first speech at the end of chapter 1. Turn to chapter 1, verse 20. When Naomi returned to Bethlehem initially, this would have been at least several months prior to chapter 4, uh, about a, or a year at least, So a year before, this is what she had said. When she came to Bethlehem from Moab, she had just been bereft of her husband and her sons. And what did she say? She said, I went out, well, verse 20, she said to them, to the women of Bethlehem, do not call me Naomi. That name means pleasant. Naomi means pleasant. Call me Mara. Uh, For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full. I went out full with a husband and two sons, but Yahweh has caused me to return empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Yahweh has answered against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity on me. Did any of the women ever call her by her new nickname? Those of you who have been here, did did anyone ever call her that? She told people, she commanded people to call her that. Mara means bitter, where we get the name Mary. Sorry if your name's Mary, it means bitter. Uh, But no one in the book ever called her that. The women never called her that. But we see these same women now in chapter 4, and what do they say? They are now blessing God for the way God has dealt with her. She was lamenting in chapter 1 and saying, the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. But now we see at the end of her story, we see there's this chorus of people blessing God for the way that he has dealt with her. She would, of course, not have chosen that path. If she could have charted her own path through life, she would not have put on that plan. My husband will die before ripe old age. My sons, will, I'll have to bury my sons. Um, I'll end up in Bethlehem with this foreign lady who's nice, but she's from Moab, and it's just me and her together, lonely old widows. She would not have, have chosen that path. And, and, and in our lives as well, Uh, we would often choose a different path for ourselves, wouldn't we? If God asked us, okay, choose your own adventure. Uh, Choose your own life. How many children do you want? When do you want to die? Uh, What spiritual gifts do you want? What natural gifts do you want? Um, We would likely choose things that would not be what God chooses for us. Uh, And even today, we, we pray many prayers to God, to, to remove suffering from our life, to prevent different kinds of disappointments from our life. But providence, right, God's control over our lives, he often says no. He often withholds blessings that we pray for and that we desire. Uh, we want a perfect family. We want to have plenty of money. We want to be healthy. Uh, we want to 
be part of a church even with no, no problems, just onwards and upwards, always ascending uh, into greater heights of spirituality and, and glory. But sometimes the Lord doesn't bring that into our lives. Sometimes he says no. And so why is that? Why did God deal, quote-unquote, so bitterly with Naomi at different points in her life? Well, it was because God had better things for her, didn't he? Notice that at the end of verse 15, the women actually say that Ruth is better than seven sons. Than seven sons. Uh, that, that is not trivializing at all the death of her sons or saying that they were worthless sons. It, it's, but it is focusing on Ruth and what an enormous blessing Ruth is to Naomi. And Naomi would not have had that if her family was just perfect, if they had uh, uh, li- lived in Moab for decades and grown old there. Um, or even return to Israel with the family intact. They would not have met Boaz. Uh, Ruth and Naomi would not have been brought into Boaz's family. Um, God had better things for Naomi, and that's what we're to take away from the, this, this chorus of praise that we hear from the women regarding Naomi. They say, May he, this child, be to you a restorer of your soul and a sustainer of your old age. She didn't have grandchildren, you remember. So when her sons died, she didn't have any grandchildren. Uh, Possibly they were not able to conceive with their wives. But now she, she finally does have a grandson, and this grandson will be a restorer of her soul. And when he grows older, who will provide for her in old age. So he is not only a, a dear relative, a dear Uh, grandson, but also a form of security. Uh, As a woman in Israel, you were dependent on the men. All the work was was basically work that men did, and so you were very dependent on the the males in your family, and so he would be a form of security for her in her old age. And so the story, we see, it might have ended there. It might have ended there. What a sweet story about God bringing a happy ending to these believers. Uh, We see that God has cared for them. Uh, He's provided everything that they need. This lady was bereft of her whole family. Well, she has this sweet new family. And uh, we could just, just end there and say, well, God will deal the same with every believer in a sense. Uh, In the uh, eternal sense, we will receive our eternal reward. We'll be with Christ in glory in heaven. We'll rest from our labors. But the author doesn't end there, does he? How does Ruth end? Again, it might surprise us a little bit, but let's just finish the, this chapter, this book, and see how the author chooses to end the, end the book. It says, Then Naomi took the child and put, her, put him on her bosom and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez, the son of Judah. Okay, so the son of Judah is Perez. Perez became the father of Hezron. Hezron became the father of Ram. Ram became the father of Aminadab. 
Aminadab became the father of Nation. Nation became the father of Salma. Salmon became the father of Boaz. And Boaz became the father of Obed. And Obed became the father of Jesse. And Jesse became the father of David. So we have not known this up to this point. So the author is, is, is surprising us a bit, or a lot, especially for the Jewish reader originally reading this. All this time, we thought this was just a sweet story about people that lived a long time ago. And we thought it was just an encouraging story about providence caring for us. But now the author, writing hundreds of years later, probably during the reign of David, he zooms out and he lets us see where these little tiny lives fit into into God's grand plan. These aren't just random ancient people. These are actually the ancestors of David, and by extension, the ancestors of the Messiah. And so we see that what God is doing here, it's not just caring for impoverished widows. This is actually, he's doing that, but at the same time, in his grand plan, these people were used by him to bring Christ into the world. Christ would not have been born without these people. Let's just survey that for for a moment in the Old Testament for those of you who may not be familiar with that theme. Uh, If you are just starting to read the Bible seriously, cover to cover, and you're in the Old Testament, you may think, wow, there's a lot of genealogies here. Even in Ruth, there's a genealogy that ends the book. Why are there so many lists of names? And why is that important for me to read? Why couldn't they just keep those in their records in the temple somewhere? Uh, Why is that important for me to read as a Christian? Well, to understand that question, we have to go back to the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3.15, after the fall of man into sin, God was addressing the serpent, the devil, who was possessing a serpent, uh, the man Adam and his wife Eve. And as he was speaking to the serpent and pronouncing a curse upon the serpent, he said that a seed of the woman would bruise the head or crush the head of the serpent. And so that's the first instance of this theme of seed or descendants that we read in the Old Testament. And so a descendant of Eve would be the deliverer of the world, would be the one to finally crush, deliver the death blow to Satan. This theme was built upon and expanded uh, in the time of Abraham, thousands of years later. This promise came into sharper focus with Abraham, where God told Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed through his family. And so the Jewish people are all descended from Abraham. The reason why the Jews cared so much about their ancestry is because God had promised to save the world from its sin through their family through their descendants. And still this promise came into sharper focus in 2 Samuel 7 in the Davidic covenant where God promised King David, I will raise up one of your seed, one of your descendants after you, who will come forth from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. And so it's, it comes, it's still even a greater Greater clarity comes with that covenant, again, thousands of years later after the time of Ruth. And so now a descendant of David will be the one that will reign forever over the kingdom of God. 
And that person we all know, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew 1, that's what the genealogy at the beginning of the New Testament is all about. It's saying he's finally come. Uh, Here's the Messiah. The descendant of Abraham and the descendant of David is now here. And so we see in this story that their lives were part of a bigger picture. Their lives were actually interwoven with God's plan of salvation, his global plan of redemption that has now even touched us at the other end of the world. And so we first saw that at the end of Providence, we'll see that our sacrifices are rewarded. We'll also see our misery reversed and repaid. But we will also see, and probably most importantly, Christ enthroned at the end of Providence. So what, what is God doing in the world? Uh, what is his goal? Uh, where is history moving toward? It's to the enthronement of Christ. It's not just, we, we can't just isolate ourselves and God's dealings with us from, from his great plan for this world, his global plan for this world. And the greatest need of our world is for the Son of God to return and reign as a king over, over every nation and to subdue all the nations and to reign as king over us. Uh, his first coming that we celebrate is Christmas was about his salvation from sin. Uh, He came into the world to save his people from their sin. And having accomplished that on the cross and being raised from the dead, uh, he is now sitting at God's right hand and waiting to, to bring to completion the kingdom, to bring the kingdom of God to its full fruition. And so that's a question we should all ask ourselves. Am I complaining and moaning about the life God has given me? Well, another question to ask yourself would be, is, is the great passion and the great desire of my life to see Christ reigning over this world? Or am I just, do I just want some blessings from God? And I get bitter toward God when he withholds blessings from me. Is my great ambition to be a worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, to see him enthroned? Uh, is my joy found in Christ? Or, or is Christ, he's not the goal of my life. He's sort of a, a part over here. He's helping me achieve what I really want, which is idolatry. And so the author of Ruth is reminding us that, that our lives are part of God's greater plan. Uh, the goal, God's goal for you Let's just wrap it up. God's goal for you is not to have a blessed life, in all caps, in this world. That's not his goal. He will actually inflict pain on you. He will actually bring suffering into your life. He will let you be ostracized and isolated if it will tend to a greater goal, if it will tend to produce a perfect happiness that you can only experience in the presence of Christ. So at the end of Providence... Uh, knowing more than the author of Ruth knew, but still connecting it with his trajectory. Uh, At the end of Providence, we'll see the Son of God sitting on his throne with the city of God, with gates open to God's children, with the devil and the unbeliever burning in the lake of fire, never troubling this world again. 
the wicked will be no more. They will be cast into the outer darkness. Uh, We will see eternal praise, eternal joy, and eternal life with God. And you may even hear, like Naomi heard, a chorus of praise, people blessing God for the things that made you weep here in this life. Because those things are what finally led you there to perfect happiness. So the question I want to leave you with today is, not only have you, have you understood the book of Ruth in your mind, but has the doctrine of providence actually affected your heart? And you know that it's affected your heart is if you have become more like what David would say is a weaned child resting against his mother. That's a picture he uses in the Psalms. Is that you? Are you the weaned child resting and sleeping on its mother? Or are you like the unweaned child, fussing, uh, not weaned yet, you're still fussing, always fussing for things uh, that are, are being withheld? Um, th- a Christian that really accepts and embraces the doctrine of providence will be content, will be content. And so have you yielded to the doctrine of providence? Don't, not do you know what it is, or do you admit that it's true? But do you praise God and thank God for the life he's given you? Or are you complaining? Uh, are you grumbling? Are you, are you constantly agitating and restless about your lot, your lot in life? But it's all about faith. At the end, it's all about faith. And without faith, you know, sometimes we have not, not much to go on visibly. Sometimes we can't see the end of the road. We, we can't see hardly any of it now. And so that's why it's all about living a life of faith, uh, faith that this doctrine really is true, that God is dealing with us as children. And so that's my prayer for you, is that you would yield yourself to the doctrine of God's providence and thank him, not only for the good things, but also the, the very real and very hard things happening in your life even even right now, and know that he is, he is in, he is in those, those difficulties. Our Father, we thank you for uh, this truth, that you are always working for the good of your people. Uh, you are always leading us down the right path. Uh, we confess that we have uh, even Probably, possibly as, as recent as yesterday, complained about where you have placed us, uh, complained about how you have dealt with us, complained about our health, complained about our families, um, lost sight of your goodness. We pray you would give us eyes of faith uh, to see the great, and overwhelming and astonishing goodness that is all around us in the everyday uh, occurrences of life. We pray that we would all be as weaned children in our hearts as we faithfully serve you and persevere in the Christian life. We pray all this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.